humans want to be accepted before they want to be hurt. So this is the foundation of psychological safety. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to this episode where I have Dr. Timothy R. Clark. He is the founder CEO of Leader Factor. And this man has authored over five books. His latest one, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, is a really important conversation that we need to have when it comes to being in the workplace, leadership in the workplace, and really understanding why is this so important to allow teams to function better, how to function independently better. And what you'll quickly realize is everything we're going to talk about here is going to apply far beyond the workplace. But we're really going to hit on some key aspects of how you can understand it, how you can utilize it, and how it can make you such a better performer in the workplace in the process. We're talking with a man who has developed the EQ meter assessment and training, has worked with countless organizations, has been the CEO of major consulting firms and the operations person behind a major steel company as well. And he's here to teach us these amazing insights Dr. Timothy Clark, it is a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jason. It's a real delight to be with you. Now, Tim, you've written several books, and here we're talking about something called psychological safety. It's not something that I feel I've been exposed to as a term so boldly in the workplace. So I'd love to hear a bit more about how did this topic come to fruition and why is it so important? That's a great place to start, Jason. So let's, yeah, let's back up a little bit. The term was officially coined by a social psychologist by the name of William Kahn in 1990. He teaches at Boston University. So you got to go back 29 years. That's when it came into the research literature, but it took a while. The concept, I mean, if you really think about it, the concept is as old as the first human interaction. So there's nothing new. We just have unified around a common term in the last few years. But not only that, there's been an explosion of research in this area and we've learned some very important things. For the sake of the listeners, let me give you a very simple definition. Psychological safety means that you can participate and interact in a social unit without feeling embarrassed or humiliated or punished in some way. So you don't have that fear. Does that make sense? That's the basic definition. That is a pretty thorough definition, and I think I understand it. I mean, if I'm being fearful, and I can think of times where it's like, okay, I'd want to speak my truth, but I feel that there would be possibly negative consequences to speaking out. And if I could use an example such as, oh, I want to give feedback to one of my leaders, but I know if I do, they would be hurt, they might be angry, I might get fired. Is this an example of a time where psychological safety is definitely not present? Completely. And so the example that you just gave, Jason, is a great one. And I'll bet that we have all felt that way. How many times, so for those of you listening, how many times, think about a time when you hesitated to raise your hand or to make a comment or to ask a question or to participate in some way. The reason that you hesitated is because the psychological safety wasn't as high as you needed it to be. And so what happens is, if it's not there, then fear triggers what we call the self-censoring instinct. That means that we are going to change our behavior 
as a result of the lack of psychological safety. And that's what the research, that's why this topic is so crucial. The absence of psychological safety, when a leader pushes the fear button, that changes people's behavior. And so you're not going to get the engagement. You're not going to get the productivity. You're not going to get the retention. So think about the workplace. How important are those things? So people's behavior changes and it sort of mirrors or follows the level of psychological safety that they perceive in the environment. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. I'd be curious, you talked about things like retention. What happens? Because I feel like you need a high level of awareness here to understand this idea of psychological safety. But for somebody just listening in, like, why would I want to strive, if I can come here as a curious soul, why would I want to strive to raise the psychological safety level in the workplace? What are some of the benefits that would happen aside from, I guess, more truth coming out? Let's think about what happens as a consequence. So in the framework that I put forward in the book, what I do is I share my research findings. And what happens is that psychological safety follows a natural progression and it goes through four stages. So stage one is inclusion safety. This is the foundation. This is where we start. Inclusion safety means that I feel included in the group. I feel accepted. I feel that I belong Humans want to be accepted before they want to be heard. So this is the foundation of psychological safety, to be included. That's stage one. Then we go to stage two. Stage two is learner safety. So learner safety is a little bit different. It requires a little higher level of psychological safety. And what it means is that now I feel safe to engage in learning activities, asking questions, giving and receiving feedback, experimenting even making mistakes. So you can see that now if I'm learning, that's a little different than just being included, right? And it's the next natural stage. So we go from inclusion safety, the learner safety. And then after that, we go to stage three, which is contributor safety. Contributor safety means that now I feel safe in being able to contribute as a full member of the team to use my skills and abilities to make a difference. And that's the next natural human need. Once I learn something, I want to be able to use it. I want to be able to apply it. So that's why that becomes the third stage. And then the fourth stage, the culminating stage, is what we call challenger safety. Now think about that for a minute. Challenger safety means that I feel safe in being able to challenge the status quo. Now think about that for a minute. In order to feel comfortable and confident in doing that, psychological safety needs to be at its highest possible level because my personal level of personal exposure, risk, vulnerability is super high. And so I need the organization to protect me and my leaders to protect me in my candor. So I need air cover for my candor. So you can see that challenger safety really is the culmination. It's the highest level. So that's how it progresses. I love how it progresses. And I particularly see where the higher you go up, the less dysfunctional an organization's culture would end up being. Because I can so many times see examples where if you're not challenging 
any kind of opinion being said of somebody or, or somebody making that statement, you're not challenging it, then in essence, these ideas don't get debated. You can't find the best solution. And then you kind of have everybody following as sheep. You're not sure if you're actually going the right direction. Nobody's questioning it. I could see the companies getting in a lot of trouble if they don't have that level of psychological safety. Have you noticed any core examples of companies that did not get to that level and it brought some real consequences? Sure. If you think about organizations that die, so let's think about organizations such as Palm or Atari or some of these organizations, Blockbuster recently, Toys R Us. These are organizations that are filled with thousands of highly intelligent people. And yet these organizations failed to adapt to the environment. They lost their adaptive capacity. Losing your adaptive capacity is cultural in nature. And what it means is that the organization is not what we call circulating local knowledge that comes from the bottom of the organization, from all parts of the organization. And so why are we not circulating local knowledge to help us continue to be adaptable? Because leadership becomes isolated, insulated, arrogant. So this goes to your point, Jason, that you made. It's a beautiful point. In order to innovate, the leaders have to do two things at the same time. The leader has to increase intellectual friction, right? We need ideas colliding, rubbing against each other. We need creative abrasion. We need constructive dissent. We need tolerance for candor. At the same time, we need to decrease social friction. So let me repeat that. The leader's job is to increase intellectual friction and at the same time decrease social friction. That is the only way that leaders can create an ecosystem of bravery in the organization. Because how else do you innovate? You cannot innovate if people are in a mindset of groupthink and they're compliant with the status quo. There's no innovation going on. All they're doing is abiding by the status quo. So innovation by its very nature is disruptive. It's subversive of the status quo. If your organization relies on innovation, if that's what drives growth for you, and chances are it is, then you need leaders that have the ability to increase the intellectual friction and decrease the social friction at the same time. That's how you create psychological safety that goes all the way to the challenger level. Wow. I can just imagine how amazing a team must function if everybody knows that, hey, we can't be in trouble if we're disagreeing. Let's just get these ideas, battle out, and focus on an outcome that brings the company towards more innovation, more impact. And so then it begs the question for me is like, what is my responsibility as an individual for getting into a space where I have psychological safety as opposed to what is the responsibility for the organization to create that environment? Mm. Mm -hmm. So for the individual, the individual's responsibility is to engage and to release, to release your discretionary effort, to give your best. But again, there's a reciprocal relationship here. You're not going to do that unless you perceive enough psychological safety that allows you to do that. And that psychological safety is a combination of two things. Number one, respect. And number two, permission 
So those things come together, the respect and the permission, they come together to create a particular level of psychological safety. So you're going to perceive that as an individual, and then you're going to respond accordingly. So you can take any social unit, any organization, it doesn't matter if it's the president's cabinet or the local food truck around the corner, every organization registers some level of psychological safety. So the individual's responsibility is to participate and engage in good faith, but the leader's and the organization's responsibility is to nurture and cultivate and sustain that environment of high psychological safety, right? Because if you say to your employees, look, we want your best efforts. We want you to bring your whole selves to work, but you don't provide psychological safety. That's not good faith. That's very disingenuous. How can you possibly expect people to bring their whole selves to work if they perceive that it's dangerous to engage? That doesn't work. So you can see the reciprocation here. You can see the social exchange that has to take place in organizations. So I think what we're seeing, Jason, and in the research that I did for this book over the last three years, it was fascinating. Even hardcore authoritarian bosses who like to push the fear button, who like to lead through command and control, even those kinds of leaders that I've worked with and did work with in the research for the book, they have to acknowledge the importance of psychological safety and sometimes resentfully, but they acknowledge it and they end up saying, you know what, we have to have this because this is the only way that we can innovate. Otherwise, our top talent, we're going to bleed out our top talent. They're not going to stay, right? They're not going to put up with it. So think about the millennials that are pouring into the workforce. Think about the Gen Zs that are on their heels. Think about the expectations, the cultural expectations that they have for an organization. If they come into an organization where the psychological safety is very low, they're not going to put up with that. They're going to leave. So your top talent is going to bolt very quickly. Your mediocre talent will have a hard time figuring out what to do. And then the lower level of talent, they're going to put their heads down and just try and get through it. That's what happens. Is this something that's just started happening more aggressively recently? Because I feel like this is something that's so humane, it should have always been a topic that's of great importance. But are we seeing it being prioritized as something that needs to be done? And is it because we're doing it worse now or are just people more demanding? What's going on? Oh, that's an extremely insightful question, Jason. Here's my take on that. Historically, we have normalized unacceptable behavior in the workplace. And I would ask all of the listeners out there to think about this. So historically, we've had bullying behavior, we've had harassing behavior, we've had shaming behavior. We've had people would ridicule other people. They would belittle them. They would demean them. They would suck all of the psychological safety out of the room. And it was okay. It was okay. We normalized that over time. And so I think what we're seeing is a gradual change, but that change, what I'm seeing anyway, is being accelerated by the fact that millennials in particular are demanding it. 
they just won't put up with anything less. And I think that there's just more of a universal acknowledgement. I think we're getting a lot more honest that certain behaviors are not okay and that it's a moral requirement that you provide a foundation of psychological safety for your team simply by virtue of the fact that you're a member of the human family. I owe that to you. And so I need to invite you into my society, right? That's stage one. That's inclusion safety. We owe that to each other. And so, for example, if you want to talk about diversity and inclusion, right, what's the relationship between an inclusive environment and psychological safety? Well, the relationship is very simple. Inclusion is stage one of psychological safety. It's your foundation. And then you build from there. So I think there's some forces at work, though, Jason, to your question that are expediting the awareness of this and the demand for this. And I see organizations literally that are incorporating psychological safety as a selection criterion for promotion. And they're saying, look, if you don't have the demonstrated ability to create psychological safety for your team, you can't lead a team. You're disqualified. I don't care how brilliant you are. I mean, that's great, but you're going to have to be an individual contributor because if you're going to lead a team, then you have to lead a team. And leading a team, by definition, to a large extent, it means that you create psychological safety for that team. Otherwise, that team cannot collaborate and execute and innovate the way that we need them to. Mm. For some reason, I just keep thinking about that example of a superstar salesperson being promoted to sales manager, and then they're terrible at it because whatever skills they had as a salesperson superstar is completely different than the skills you need to be able to create psychologically safe environments that go people to move higher up the stages that definitely bring a lot more positive results as people move closer and closer to this challenger stage. And so I'd love to dig into that. What do I need to nurture is it in myself to be able to create these as a leader? Like, why is it that some leaders are incapable of doing it? So let's go back to what you said. And this is a chronic problem across organizations. We often promote people into management on the strength of their performance as an individual contributor. The best software developer, the best salesperson, the best accountant, the best engineer, the best whatever right? As an individual contributor, they're a high performer. And so we tap them on the shoulder and we say, we're going to make you a manager. Now that's not all bad because they need the credibility of being a high performer as an individual contributor. So I would say it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. We have to ask the question, what else do they need? They need to be able to transition to leading through others. So that means they have to go through a psychological and an emotional transition where they go from contributing directly. If I'm an individual contributor, then I contribute directly, right? If I'm that great salesperson, I contribute directly. I go through a transition to where now I contribute indirectly. That's a fundamental shift in the way that I contribute. So what has to accompany that is a psychological transition so that I now have the ability to be happy and rejoice in the success of other people. I have to be able to contribute indirectly and be satisfied 
gain a deep sense of satisfaction in that mode of contribution. That mode has shifted. Even if I become the CEO someday, the nature of the way that I contribute will never change as fundamentally as it does when I take my first management job. So going back to your question, what do I need to be able to do to create psychological safety? More than anything else, I need to know who I am and I need to be secure in who I am with my weaknesses and my blind spots and my insecurities. I've got to come to peace with who I am. If I can do that, then I can create psychological safety because here's the number one signal. What your team's going to look for behaviorally is the way that you handle dissent, challenge, and bad news. They're going to watch you like a hawk, right? They're going to put you under the lamp and they're going to watch to see how you behaviorally respond to a challenge, to disagreement, to bad news. If you accommodate that bad news and dissent, if you can handle that cheerfully and with optimism, then that sends a very clear signal to everyone that, you know what, dissent's okay. Disagreement's okay. That creative abrasion that we talked about, it's okay. And so then that draws people out and they will engage. But if you can't handle the disagreement and the dissent and the bad news, and you sense clear signals, right, based on your emotional reaction, that's not lost on anybody. Everybody gets it. So what are they going to do? They're going to manage personal risk. They're going to shut down. They're going to recoil. They're going to retrench. They have no choice. That's a normal human response when psychological safety is not there. So you are constantly, as a leader, as a manager, as a supervisor, whatever your role is, you are constantly communicating to your people emotionally through all of your nonverbal cues all of that, both verbal and nonverbal, you're communicating your reaction to dissent, to disagreement, to bad news. So what we're hoping is that leaders give their people a license to disagree and a license to innovate, and they allow them to use those licenses. And how do they do that? It's based on their behavioral response. It feels like you need to really have that sense of self-awareness and be comfortable with your own self that you're not emotionally reacting to everything that doesn't fit your ideals of what you were expecting from people. What you're speaking of always makes me think of the phrase, don't shoot the messenger, which has been, <laughs> has been mentioned before, but not necessarily followed. I love these ideas that you're bringing forward. What are we expecting? Like already, I think it's become very clear to me after speaking to you that top talent won't tolerate that. And every organization is trying to find this top talent. If you're dealing with managers and leaders who don't have that high level of self-awareness, that have these insecurities, that aren't able to create this psychologically safe zone, which I think is pretty clear that if you have more disagreement, you have more of these people challenging ideas and, and having that safe space for everybody to communicate with openness, with transparency, transparency, you obviously will get to the root of issues much quicker. You don't want to have this, oh, look, we went bankrupt like Blockbuster because nobody wanted to say digital is coming. 
I love that this is being brought forward to people in a very clear way. And so as a leader listening to this, you know, there's a lot of self-work to be done. Is this where you start? Like if I'm saying, hey, you know what? I'm realizing that I react very aggressively. What's maybe a prescription for me? Or is it hopeless for me to lead a team? (laughs) (laughs) No, actually the primary enabling skill to create psychological safety is really your emotional intelligence. So let me give you an example that connects with just with what you said, Jason. So I do, I don't know, 10 to 20% of my personal practice is with executives one-on-one. So I was coaching an executive not too long ago, extremely strong personality, type A, alpha male, silverback gorilla, very talented guy, a well-meaning guy, but too aggressive. So he would go into a room for a meeting and he would commandeer the meeting every time. He'd take over. So we sat down together and this is just an example because back to your point, Jason, can you learn? Can you get better? Can you learn to create psychological safety? Absolutely. So here's one thing we did with him. Let's call him Ralph. So I said, Ralph, let's look at what you do in a meeting. You're basically doing one of two things. You are either in discovery mode meaning you're learning things, or you're in advocacy mode, meaning you're trying to influence people to your point of view. That's mostly what you do in meetings. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get out a piece of paper and I want you to write those two words down, discovery and advocacy. And I want you to draw lines through advocacy. I don't want you to do that right now. I want you to lead through inquiry. I want you to lead through discovery. I want you to lead through questions. And I want you to shut up most of the time and put this in front of you as a prompt so that it's literally physically in front of your face. So you're gonna focus on discovery and you're not gonna worry about advocacy right now because you've gotta develop new muscle memory. Your instinct is so strong and you just have a reflex to jump in and take over and you mean well, but do you realize the effect? You're shutting people down. You're shutting them down and you are not inviting that constructive dissent that you need. So if you keep going with your behavior, you're gonna suffer from isolation. What happens when you become a leader to the feedback that you get? Two things. Number one, you get less of it. Number two, that which you do get is more filtered. So there's a quantitative and a qualitative change to the feedback that you're getting. So we already know that going in, right? This is true for all leaders. So if we know that going in, what are your countermeasures to try and lessen the impact of that, to try and solicit more feedback and higher quality feedback? Because you know it's going to take a hit. So this is the conversation that we had, and that's the exercise that we did with Ralph to get him to stay in discovery mode and not commandeer the meeting. What are people going to think the first day? They're going to say, oh, what happened to Ralph? Ralph, why are you acting this way? What, what, what is this, some kind of behavior modification? Right? That's not going to work. So this is going to have to be something that he practices over time. And... He has to convince people that his intent is pure. He doesn't have ulterior motives and that he is acting in good faith. People are not going to buy that on day one, 
but they will buy it 30 days later if he's been consistent. So can you get better? You absolutely can. That's why we classify emotional intelligence as a learnable skill instead of a fixed trait. Because it is learnable, you can do better. Now, we all have personalities, and we all have different styles, and core disposition and temperament remains relatively fixed over time. But can you get better with these things? Absolutely. No question. I love it, Tim. I think that's a powerful example for a leader to be able to do that self-work and being fixed on that discovery, I think really shifts the energy for a person, especially like Ralph that we use as an example here, who just comes in with such a strong energy. And I have a feeling some people that are listening to this all have possibly in the past, possibly currently, the experience with a certain Ralph in their organization who might not have listened to this training. <laughs> and right. so I'd love to close this off with saying, you know, what happens when I'm an individual, which I know I want to participate more, I want to create more psychological safety, I want to engage, I understand these models, and I want our organizational culture to evolve to being more towards the ideal state of challenger. And I witness a leader on my team that's acting like Ralph how do I bring that conversation forward to my leader? What responsibility do I have as an individual? And can I influence the outcome? Man, how many people have asked that question? Probably a lot. I know I have. <laughs> I know I know. I asked myself that question many, many times early in my career. I think one of the suggestions that I would give is that you want to give deference to the people around you. You want to respect the institutional past. You've got to be very respectful in your behavior, and you have to learn how to challenge and learn how to disagree in a palatable, dignified, friendly way. And I think as you do that, little by little, even the hardcore authoritarian bosses They'll give you more license. They'll give you more participation rights as you do that in a friendly, likable, diplomatic way. If you're abrasive, if you come off without that emotional intelligence, you know, fairly raw, then that doesn't go very well most of the time. So I think the skill with which you engage and debate and even challenge becomes massively important. And this is where we need people to become acutely self-aware of the way that they are presenting themselves and the way that they are engaging. So I'd probably start with that, Jason. Now, there's a lot of other things that we could talk about, but I think that it's important to, let me put it this way. You have your IQ, okay? But let's expand that and let's say, you have all your skills and knowledge and experience and competence, all of that stuff. You want to be able to contribute that. It's your EQ that delivers your IQ. Your EQ is the delivery system. So what we have on teams, we'll often find people that are incredibly intelligent and skilled, and yet they have an underdeveloped delivery system. And so it doesn't go well. So you've got to work on continuing to build competence and experience and knowledge and skills. That's great. But you got to work on your delivery system as well. 
Beautifully put. You know, I have examples in my life where even at Mind Valley, I had times where I wanted to approach Vision, you know, the founder CEO with something that I possibly disagreed with. And I've noticed times what I would just do is just pull him aside and just be like, hey, I just wanted to give you a truth, just some feedback. I would have a conversation with him just saying like, hey, I felt like that meeting didn't necessarily go in a way that I feel allowed everybody to contribute, for example, because I know vision sometimes comes with a lot of passion and some people might not have had a chance to chime in in a particular meeting, right? But I would pull them aside and just give them that feedback one-to-one. And one of the things I feel I had to kind of let go of as an individual was an expectation of his response to whatever I give to him. And so I'd be like, okay, I'd give the feedback. Then I'd be like, oh, if the feedback was like, oh, you know, I understand your point of view, but I actually think this was correct. And this could be, again, he's challenging my perspective. And then I realized that I needed to kind of come up to my own leadership psychological safety, which was like, hey, I shouldn't have any expectation on how the other person responds to me neither. But I did feel that the fact that I'm able to communicate that, that I can have that conversation or that confrontation, which I would always do on the side, allowed me to actually be recognized within Mind Valley because I would see a few weeks after I had this one instance where I actually wrote a whole email about things I disagreed with. And then I was recognized months later saying, this is an example of good behavior, how you can challenge the status quo and that you're speaking your truth and it makes sure we don't end up myopic within an organization. And so I think I've been very lucky to be in that kind of environment where I can do that. And I'm hoping others can actually see if they can nurture that, spark that using the ideas from your book here. Oh, that's a really good example, Jason, that you gave. And that reminds me of going back to stage one of psychological safety, which is inclusion safety. So the principle is that we are even morally obligated to include everyone, but there is one exception. That exception is when people present us with a threat of harm. If they present us with a threat of harm, any kind of harm, then we are justified with exclusion. We are justified in excluding them because the harm is not okay. The reason that this is important is that if you're challenging that means that personal attacks are out of bounds. They're off limits. Can't do personal attacks. The moment that anyone begins to engage in a personal attack, any kind of behavior that's demeaning or belittling or ridiculing in any way, then it's over. That cannot be tolerated because what that does is that it pollutes the entire cultural environment. That cannot be tolerated. So that goes back to your point. The way that you presented disagreement or challenge to the status quo, if it's done respectfully, normally, then that's accepted and that's okay, even if it's a strong disagreement. I love it. Tim, thank you so much for your time sharing these incredible insights that I feel a lot of people need to be aware of. I think the fact that you share this kind of framework of what the future can look like when people move from member to learning to contributor to the ultimate challenger stage of psychological safety is not only allowing you to attract amazing talent that want to be part of an organization with this kind of culture, but you're also able to engage the people that are currently in the organization far more effectively than if you're faced on this fear, command and control environment where now you can anticipate changes since you're surrounded with incredibly intelligent individuals who can share points of views that are different, can talk about trends that are coming up that you don't get blindsided because you're only getting 
filtered views of communication because that psychological safety isn't there. You share with us some powerful tools if I'm an individual or if I'm a leader on how I can build on that self-awareness, participate in creating it, having those conversations, being more in a discovery mode. I think these are all powerful ways that people can grow their emotional intelligence so that the culture can evolve and that everybody can start focusing more on making a greater impact with the organization that they are a part of. For everybody listening, have a look at the four stages of psychological safety by Dr. Timothy R. Clark. This is an amazing piece of literature, and it's going to really help you navigate that personally within your organization, with your team, to really make these environments in the workplace strive and continue to be a superhuman within it. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much, Tim, for being here. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast.